Jay and I are going to be addressing proofing. So, without further ado, we'll explain to you exactly what proofing actually is. Because this is a topic that a lot of people don't even know about. In fact, many people who have gone to puppy training schools or have gone to obedience classes still haven't been told about proofing. So, in my words, what I see proofing is, is working with your dog to give them the ability to use the training and behavioral shaping that you have done in any environment and with any distractions or situations. Jay, what about yourself? Yeah, a lot of people see proofing as something like desensitization and exposing your dog to to many different things, which which is important as well. But it also, there's so much more to it than just looking at it that way. You have to think about um, the distractions available, the different kind of environments there is, and some things you might consider random, but it's it's more about reinforcement and increasing the difficulty so that your dog succeeds as well. I mean, one of the biggest things that I think a lot of people don't think about is that when you're proofing, you've got to think about the environment from your dog's point of view, not from your own. Mm -hmm. Because to you and I, we might be walking the dog and we see an old man carrying a few shopping bags, maybe with a shopping trolley. But to the dog, that might be a terrifying monster coming towards them. And I know that sounds a bit ridiculous, but we do not get to decide what our dogs see as frightening or not. We can only help support them to get over these fears to understand that there is nothing to be scared of. And a lot of people slip up even just at that very early stage of understanding. Yeah, and during puppyhood is the fear imprint periods for them as well. So anything that they get too scared by, too nervous, too stressed out by, it, it can bring it all the way into adulthood as well. And then it's not so much as training, it's more of counter-conditioning or behavioral shaping at that point. Absolutely. So when we're talking about proofing, why do we need to do it? What's the reason that we need to proof our dog's training and behavioral shaping? A lot of people, they, they do your basic commands, right? Your sit, stay, your down, or whatever you have it at home or somewhere comfortable for the dog. And then they bring the dog out and then the dog just goes bonkers because it's over aroused, overstimulated or even scared. And then they're just wondering, my, my dog is being stubborn. Uh, like I can, he, he does it or she does it very well at home. But then suddenly when we're outside, they, they're not able to do it. And one of the most common ones I, I hear as well is that, oh, my, my dog's not uh, food motivated when we're outside. I always tell them that's not true. It's just, it's just too much stress for your dog to handle that they, they don't want the food at that point in time. They're... They're just too stressed out. Yeah, I mean, the whole thing about people saying, oh, the dog's not food motivated. Yes, I do understand that some dogs are more food motivated than others. But every animal on the planet is us included. <laughs> us included is motivated by food. Because if they weren't, they wouldn't survive. Yep. So that's like a, an interesting thing that people say, which... Um, doesn't necessarily add up. But with that said, food is not the only way to do things. You can reward with food. You can reward with affection. You can reward with play. I mean, there's many dogs I've worked with, a lot of Border Collies especially, they'll respond more to play over food. Which we see as work, but it's actually play to them because it's all a game to them if you train them properly. Exactly. But... The biggest reason to proof training and behavioral shaping with your dog is safety. Yeah. So I'll give um, a few examples of this. Some of them, they're going to seem extreme, but uh, I think these are very important to understand that if you do not proof your training and behavioral shaping with your dog, you are putting your dog at risk. 
Yeah. So that's why it's so important. So an easy one is recall. Come. So let's just set the stage there that maybe you're in a dog park and you think you've got quite a good recall, but it's not spot on. All of a sudden, somebody comes into the dog park and lets their massive dog reactive German Shepherd off leash. Now that dog is making a beeline for your dog and you're too far away to get between them. But the German Shepherd's far enough away that your dog could reach you first. This is when it becomes what my mentors call being sexier than a squirrel. So <laughs> this basically means you've got to be more attractive to your dog than a squirrel is distracting, than a big dog running towards them aggressively is scary. Yep. And this is also why it is so important to do this using positive methodology because you want your dog to come to you as a safe place, as an attractive place, as somewhere that they want to go to. If you've been doing it for negative, there's a very strong chance that this will not be proofed in a dangerous situation because yeah. the fear of the dog running towards them is more than their fear of disobeying you. Yeah. So that's just another little point about that. But if you've proofed that, as soon as that man lets that dog off leash and you see the aggression, you can recall your dog to you and make an exit before anything goes wrong. Yeah. L let me put it this way. If, if you have an abusive parent or, or sibling or someone that's in your life 24-7 and then a stranger comes up to you and tries to mug you, would you run to that abusive person for help? No, you wouldn't. You would just stay there and just get mugged instead. So it's it's like the lesser of two evils if, if you're using aversive techniques. I mean, that's a real possibility. I mean, I'm not saying that would happen every single time, yeah. but it happens enough that we need to be aware of it. And just knowing that there's another way of doing it which doesn't have that risk should be enough that we do that. Um, th this recall one can be put into many different situations. I just came back from a trip home to Scotland and in the UK, if your dog is in a farmer's field bothering the livestock, the farmer is completely within their right to shoot and kill your dog on sight. Yeah. And if you don't have your dog's recall strong enough to stop them from going into that field, your dog may be killed legally by the farmer. Mm -hmm. So that's another great example. You've got loads of them, though. You've got leave it. If your dog is going for rat poison in the street, being able to tell them to leave it could mean life and death. Yeah. Uh, another good one is door dashing as well. If, if you haven't proofed out door dashing, it, it doesn't matter where it is. Of course, you start it at home where it's the easiest and it's the most important one, I would say. But you could always progress that into, let's say you have to take the lift. So if the lift door is open, they don't immediately dash out the door or you're at a dog run or you bring them into a pet shop. So you don't have to, you don't have that worry that your dog's going to just run out and get into trouble. Absolutely. I mean, that's an all too common one that people don't proof. And that's more behavioral shaping than it is training because you're actually shaping the behavior so the dog doesn't leave the door without permission, even when nobody else is in the room. Yeah. And that's something that's very important. I mean, and again, this goes for being able to put your dog onto a place or a mat or a bed when you've got delivery arriving, when you've got guests arriving or any of those things. There's a lot of these things that if they're not proofed, they can become potentially dangerous for your dog or for the people around you and their comfort as well. But one of the other big reasons you need to proof is because dogs do not generalize very well. So if you teach your dog a down in the living room, you cannot expect your dog to automatically understand that that same behavior needs to be done in a hundred different environments. Mm -hmm. So you've literally got to drill and repeat this specific training 
throughout different environments with different distractions so that you're able to create that safe reliability within your dog. And that is exactly why we need to do it. So now let's move on to how to proof. We've got to ensure that our dog is ready for proofing before we even get to that stage. So this means that you need to have the basic training kind of down. And this is where people get very, very lost at the beginning because there's a lot of things within the basic training that they get wrong. Um, and it's not their fault. If you've never been taught, then you will not know. That's why we do these podcasts to help people understand this. So if you've not got your dog to a suitable level of training with the specific commands in an environment which is not stressful, which is not different from the environment they're used to, then you can't even expect your dog to be able to do anything out with that safe environment. And the other thing is starting early and making sure that you're always setting them up for success is paramount. For the basic training needs, it's effectively acronyms that we use that will run through this the best. So we always talk about the four C's and the four F's. So for the first C, it's about being calm when you're training your dog. Not not even just training your dog, in in general, being around your dog. Because dogs are really highly attuned to human emotions and they read our body language better than we can read one another. So if they sense that you're anxious, you're frustrated, or you're stressed, they don't exactly make the connection that you are stressed because maybe it's on a walk and you're worried that your dog is going to start lunging at things like that. No, they don't see it that way. They just see that, oh, my owner's stressed. And then the next thing I look at, I'm going to assume that that is what's causing my owner to be stressed. That's why they continue lunging and they continue barking or acting aggressive to or being reactive to whatever that's present to them. So if you can stay calm, you have a better emotional connection with your dog, you, you form better bonds with them, and they will start to look to you for guidance and reassurance. If you can remain calm, your dog also feels more secure and comfortable. So they can focus better on the training that you're doing, especially if you can stay calm, you also have less stress, right? So if you're less stressed, your dogs are less stressed, less anxious as well. So a lot of people don't realize that this stress actually hinders the learning process. And there can be a lot of negative associations with your training. You, you should stay calm and you can create a relaxed atmosphere to encourage your dog to learn and engage with you. The other thing that can happen if you're not staying calm is you can make the mistake more easily of poisoning the cues or poisoning the commands. This is when, for example, you're trying to get your dog to recall. Your dog's not recalled five times. On the sixth time, your dog recalls. But when your dog recalls, instead of you being happy and rewarding appropriately, you're frustrated. So you're creating a negative association for your dog actually doing what you've asked them to do. It's the whole thing of you should never recall your dog to you to punish them. Yeah. Because then, then they don't want to come back. Yeah. Exactly. It, it poisons that cue. And that can happen with any cue. Yeah. And so one very, or a few very common ones that I, I always notice is that when you tell a dog no, you, you're telling your dog no or stop it or something like that. You're saying it in a very different voice, in a very different tone. So it's it's more negatively associated than it is positive. By doing that, you're essentially punishing your dog, even though you might be doing out of concern, out of safety. So there, there's a lot of better ways to redirect your dog than, than trying to sternly tell them no or stop it or get off or whatever it is. So the next C, the second C is clear. So you've got to be clear. Your clarity is very, very important. And this is when it comes down to, have you taught your dog the basic cues and commands with single or very clear words and hand signals. Because having this makes everything more clear in the moment and, of course, moving forward. This also includes things like not nagging your dog. So 
it's very, very important not to nag your dog. If you say, set, 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 your dog's then going to think that that is the command to sit. They're not separating those words. They don't speak English. So they're basically acting based on your commands. So you want to say it once and you want to get the result. So this is where repetition is a big, big no-no. Everything must be incredibly clear and you must wait until you're ready to repeat if you have to repeat. But if you do have to repeat, you've got to ask yourself, why didn't the dog do it in the first place? And that's something that we'll look at a little later on when we talk more about proving. Yep. And the, the next C is confidence. So you have to be very confident to be a good leader. We're, we're not talking about being the alpha or all that bullshit. So dogs want a strong leader. If you can show that you're confident in every situation, although, of course, understandably, there, there will be some situations where you might get worried or you might get stressed out. But if most of the time your dog can perceive you as a reliable and capable leader, it makes it a lot easier for them to follow your command. So be, being confident, of course, it, it starts with the basics, right? You have to do your basic training very well. You have to be familiar with your dog. And as you be more successful with that, your own confidence with your dog will grow. It enables you to tackle more advanced levels of training if you wish to in the future. You have to also celebrate small progresses that you make with your dog. Like some people don't realize it, but they're progressing every day. They, they start with being able to get your dog to stay and then suddenly um, they can stay while you leave the house to just take out the trash or things like that. And of course, the most important one is to educate yourself. So you, you need the right knowledge about how to move forward with with your positive training uh the right reinforcements methods and have a plan have a plan if you have a plan that boosts your confidence as well absolutely and the fourth c is consistency now we all know if you're training anything if you're training your dog if you're training yourself if you're educating yourself if you're going to the gym if you're playing a sport You've got to consistently put in the practice to get the results. And this is something that we face a lot with people that will book a session in every week or every couple of weeks. And then you turn up to the next session, you're like, how's everything been going? I've not been receiving any updates from you. And they say, oh, we've not actually practiced between sessions. Which effectively means that you just have to then repeat what you've done at the last session because there's been no consistency and as a result, the chances of there being progress is very, very slim. So consistency is incredibly important just to put in the practice. But consistency also works along the lines of are you consistently calm? Are you consistently clear? Are you using the same words as the command you're not confusing them are you consistently confident so this brings us to things like don't work on your dog if you've had a bad day so if you're feeling frustrated and angry give that one a miss make sure that when you're feeling better that you put the practice in then because consistency works not just with your consistency in your actions but also in your confidence as well now, for anybody that's done any corporate training, they'll probably recognize a lot of that. And that's literally because I took this from corporate training from my previous career years and years ago. So being a good leader within a work environment, within a sporting environment, commands all the same aspects as it does to be a good leader and a good coach and a good trainer with your dog. So it is all very, very similar. So the next acronym is four Fs. Now this one's a little bit less intense, but still very, very important. I always say that when you're doing commands, you've got to be relatively firm. Now, 
This is not what many people think. Firm does not mean being cruel or being mean to your dog. It means just having an air of authority within your voice. And the main reason for this is actually going back to clarity. Because if you say to a friend or a family member, oh, could you just sit down over on that chair? You don't want your dog to randomly sit because you've said the word sit. So when you're giving the command, you may want to change your tone just a tad. Now, being firm, as I said, does not mean that you've got to be an asshole to your dog. It's just not what that means. But it might mean that you change your tone to the likes of sit, down, stay. It's very clear and precise. And the next F is fair. So again, this comes back to consistency, but fair effectively means you've got to be fair to your dog. If you're expecting your dog to do things that are way beyond what you've practiced, you're being unfair. If you're basically setting your dog up for failure at all, you're being unfair within the training environment. So you've always got to be fair within that. Yeah, just to add on quickly to that, um, to being firm and fair, e- even though some people have uh, their dogs for, they, they got a dog for work, like on a farm or, or military or anything like that, it's it's a lot better to have your dog work with you than for you. It, it, it's really similar in actually our own daily lives. You're, you're more willing to listen and follow a leader who is firm but fair to you as well, rather than... Uh, a dictatorship basically but the next two uh the next two f's is actually being fun and being friendly so these two come hand in hand together when it comes to training your dog you have to incorporate a lot of fun and friendliness into the process because that makes a significant difference in their learning and their overall experience Uh, a lot of people don't realize it but your dog is not your slave i mean slavery was already abolished in 1865 but then i still see some people talking about like talking about their dog as if they're not another member of the family or someone that they actually cherish and want to form a proper bond with. So with these two points, fun and friendly, you have to have a very strong positive association for your dog to want to listen to you as well. You have to make your training sessions fun so your dog looks forward to the training. They become more eager to learn and actively engage with you Positive associations always foster enthusiasm, um, motivation. So your training sessions become more effective. You also have a strengthened bond with your dog because training should be an opportunity to strengthen the bond between you and your dog. A fun and friendly approach will build that trust that you can that you need with your dog. It establishes a sense of partnership as well and it deepens your connection. The whole positive emotional experience is actually for both of you because that's what you want when you get a dog, right? It, it builds a stronger and more fulfilling relationship. So the way to do that, you have to engage in interactive games. Don't just buy a toy for your dog and then just toss it aside and then just let them do it by themselves because I, I see a lot of people do that. They, they feel like, oh, that's training that will be done. No, that's not because then your dog might listen to the toy more than the dog will listen to you because they actually spend more time with the dogs. The next thing is to keep your sessions short and varied, right? So dogs have short attention spans. So training sessions, I usually advise my clients to do that. Do 10 to 15 minutes and then take a break. This prevents a lot of boredom or frustration, especially if you can't get the dog to do what you want them to do, which we'll talk more about later on. But keeping it short also helps your dog stay interested. And it also adds an element of fun and excitement to the training routine. You have to incorporate breaks. So even if you're on a walk, even if you're doing training, allow your dog to have fun and relax as well. So if you're playing fetch or tug of wars, just take a break after 10 minutes and then do something else. Let them rest. And then if you feel like you have enough energy, your dog doesn't show any uh, physical signs of being exhausted or stressed out, then you can jump right back at it. So that's really the acronyms down. And with all of that explained, I'm sure that you guys can appreciate why we explain it once and then every time we 
talk about it afterwards with our clients. We talk about the four C's and the four F's because otherwise we'd be going at that for a very long time. There is a few other things that it's very important to understand when you're doing the basic training work. Um, bonding is very important. Jay touched on it a little bit there. But to bond with your dog, of course, the person who feeds them, that's a bonding experience. The person who walks them, that's a bonding experience. The person who spends time with them and cuddling them, if they like cuddles, or just being around them, that's bonding as well. But probably the most effective bonding you can do is actually working with your dog, playing with your dog, training your dog. And one thing that we notice in many different households is, especially in the likes of Singapore and Hong Kong, where it's very, very common for people to have domestic helpers, is that we'll be called in and people will say, oh, the dog doesn't seem to have that good a bond with me. And then on asking the questions, the helper feeds them, the helper walks them, the helper spends most time with them. A lot of the time the dogs actually sleep in the helper's room. And when we turn up to training, the owners are very blatant in saying, oh, we need the helper here when we're doing the training because they're the ones that are going to be doing the training as well. If that's the case, just because they own the dog and fund the food and the training, what they've actually done is got their helper a dog. I mean, the dog doesn't have access to your bank account and details. They don't realize that you're the one paying the bills and everything yeah. like that. Even if they do, they don't understand the concept of money the way we do. So mm. there's nothing wrong with it, I, I believe. But then you have to be able to join in as well. You have to participate with the training because it, it, it's very similar to what we said at the start of, of this episode as well, right? Um, you put your dog at training school, basic obedience classes, and then... 10 sessions later, they send you videos of your dog doing really well, being like the A student. But then when they get home, they don't listen to you. Why? So this kind of explains it. Yeah. I mean, and we're not just talking about situations where there's a domestic helper. You also have it where the dog will be more bonded to the wife over the husband or vice versa. And they'll say, oh, we really want our dog to be our child's dog. The child's not involved with the dog, so the dog's not going to create a bond with that child. So it's it's very important that you ensure that the bonding is being done ideally equally amongst the household, although there will always be an individual that the dog looks to as the leader of the household. And again, the reason I don't say alpha is because you are not a dog, so you are not mm -hmm. the alpha dog. It's yeah. just that simple. Yeah, um, I've heard that term too many times that I get annoyed if someone brings that up with me. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I used to get annoyed about it, but now I'm at the stage where it's been so popularized that when people talk about it, I just say, do you know what the best thing to do is look up the man that coined that, Dr. David mm -hmm. Meck. Go to his website. The first video that comes up is him explaining why his research was flawed and why we shouldn't <laughs> be using that term anymore. The guy that did it in the 70s is the one that's trying to fight against it. So that kind of, to me, is a bit of a full stop on the matter. Yeah. But the next step is focus. So the art of attention and basic bonding is both focus. So the art of attention is normally the first exercise that we go through with people so that their dog is always looking to them on the dog's name being said. So it's effectively understanding that your name, my name, everybody's name, your dog's name, all it is is an attention noise so that you understand that you are being addressed and no different for your dog. Yeah. It's like roll call in school. That's what yeah. they call each person's name. And then you're supposed to raise your hand and say present or here and stuff like that. They were training us the same way you're going to be training your dogs. Well, I'm sure April's <laughs> trained me in the same way I've trained the dogs in some things. <laughs> I mean, you, you you definitely see the similarities between dog training and training Freya, don't you? Oh, for sure. I mean, especially from the, the years of three and below with children, it's very, very similar. Of course, when human children start to become more 
cognitively developed, for lack of a better term, their emotions start to become more complex. So it obviously does change the way that education has to be done. And that's a psychological question, which is absolutely fascinating. But even then, there are still similarities between even coaching and training adults to training and coaching animals. And that goes from a full range of training chickens, parrots, cats, dogs, horses, all the way up to training more cognitively advanced animals like like dolphins or sea lions and things like that. I mean, it's absolutely fascinating that there are so many similarities between training, coaching and educating humans and animals like that. But that is most certainly a topic for a different podcast because that's I'm, a very deep rabbit hole. Yeah, um, it, it might not be related, but um, I've been reading up a lot about how they're trying to domesticate foxes right now as well. I'm pretty yeah. sure in 100, 200, 300 years, there will be fox trainers as well doing things like what we're doing but for foxes. I'm very sure. I mean, they've been specifically breeding the more docile ones that that can be a lot more domesticated, I would say. And then they've had some success with it. But at the same time, they've also, and I, I'm not I'm not for this, but they've been uh, breeding the more aggressive ones as well. <clears throat> yeah, I mean, I, I've done some reading on that as well. And a lot of that's got to do with behavioral studies as well. Yeah. As much as people will be thinking, oh, I can get a pet fox in the next few hundred years. Well, not that we'd be around for that, but it's more for, it's it's kind of studying what it must have been like during the domestication of dogs. And they're trying yeah. to replicate that with foxes in a way. But again, topic for an, a whole new time. Yeah, yeah. Um, the next point, which is very important, is timing and markers. Timing is super important. If you fail to reward in a timely fashion you might ask your dog to sit but then you might wait three four seconds before you reward that your dog can do a lot of things within that three or four seconds might end up rewarding something completely unrelated you're essentially rewarding your dog for stay at that point in time or wait if you get your dog to sit and then three four seconds later give them a reward or you're rewarding them for looking at the front door or you're rewarding them for scratching their ear. You know, there's loads of stuff that could be, but you're effectively mm-hmm. rewarding the wrong action if your timing is off. Yeah. And, this and is don't also- panic as well. Sorry to cut you off. But if if you miss the timing, don't panic and then rush to reward your dog. Just wait and then just reward them after uh, the next time. Yes. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> this is why markers become so important. Um, And, of course, reinforcers that we'll talk about in a bit. So your markers are effectively doubling up as your secondary reinforcer. So this is when you talk about good, yes, or okay. And those three mean different things within what we teach, but you can also use them interchangeably if you're only going to be using one marker. But it means that that marker will show your dog that they are doing the correct thing based on when that word is. So this is the same as a click, like when you're doing clicker training, it's marking the behavior that you want. And that's why it's so important. And that brings us to reinforcers, which we've spoken about on the podcast a few times before, I think. But Mm -hmm. this is when you look at primary reinforcers being things like food, affection, and play. And your secondary reinforcers being those verbal markers or your click. And you must condition this. And if you've not conditioned it, you're always going to be reliant on treats. And that isn't necessarily a bad thing, but it also means that your timing will always need to be very, very sharp, which means that you're not going to be able to train your dog from a distance. Because unless you're able to throw that treat at your dog and have it, land at their feet as soon as they do that behavior, which I'm not recommending and quite honestly is a bit obscene and ridiculous. But effectively, if you've not conditioned your reinforcers, you're not going to be able to train your dog by using distance as a factor. You have to remember the types of reinforcers that you have. A lot of dogs value things differently. 
like with Blue, her her biggest reward is always to play, to always to engage in play or to run around, something more physical. With Ori, it's food. So recognizing what your dog wants best is also very important. So you you figure out that oh this particular thing or or object motivates your dog the most. So you can use those reinforcers more consistently during training. And that's a very, very quick overview of the things to be aware of when you're doing the basic training. And only when you've got those things set within a safe environment, for example, in your living room, just with you and your dog, that's when you're ready to start proofing. Now, I'm sure having gone through that, you can understand why it was important to do that. So when we talk about proofing, we like to make it fairly simple by talking about the three Ds, which is distractions, distance, and duration. The first one, a distraction, right? You always start, and, and this is how obedience training goes, right? It's a controlled environment. Your dog is not exposed to too many distractions, so they can perform the commands or cues, whatever they're taught, very reliably. But the problem is there's no gradual exposure to increase distractions. So you have to introduce these distractions very gradually, ensure that they remain manageable for your dog's current level of understanding, current skill level, and of course your skill level as well. This distractions and exposure could include things like people, uh, other animals, uh, noise, scents. You have to slowly reinforce with rewards, of course, slowly you increase the distractions by, let's say, start off with just the living room with no distractions. And then you start, it, start introducing a little bit of noise. You can play it from your phone, your speakers, whatever. Maybe your dog is very reactive to other dogs. So you play a little bit of dogs barking in the background at a very low volume. And then you slowly increase the volume until it's a very realistic level that you're comfortable with it. You feel like, oh, this sounds like it's the real thing as well. And then you start to add movement in with the noise. And then you start to add more people or other animals, things like that. You can't just say that you have a reactive dog that passed obedience training and then bring them to the dog run and expect them to be able to be recalled. No, it doesn't work that way. If you don't build up that gradual exposure of distractions, your dog's not going to be able to jump from level one to level 10 so quickly. The next one is distance. So same thing with all of the three Ds, it's always about gradual progression, right? So let's say recall training, you can get your dog to come to you five steps away if, or 10 steps away, whichever it is. If they can do it for X amount of steps, uh, X amount of distance, you have to slowly increase that to X amount of distance plus one. So if they can do it five steps away, you have to slowly build up six steps away, seven steps away, eight, nine, 10, and then so on and so forth. Because just because they can, they understand it already, but they only understand it in this context. If that context is from the toilet to the living room, then that's all they know. And the last one is duration. So this one is more, more commonly, it's about stay, I guess. Same thing, incremental increase. If your dog can stay for two seconds, and usually that's how I tell my clients as well, start with just two seconds. Take notice of your dog if they start to want to move and stuff like that. Immediately go back to them and reward them. If they can do two seconds, then they can do five seconds, then they can do 10 seconds until you can leave the house, go for a cup of coffee and return, and then they might still be staying in a spot. Of course, I'm not telling you to do that, but then that's proofing in a nutshell for the three Ds. So what I'll do now is I'll run through an example. The example I'm going to use is stay. But this should be done for all of the commands and all the behavioral shapings that you might put in place with your dog. So although this might differ from different commands and behavioral shapings, the example still holds true. And the three Ds is what you must consider at all times. So doing a stay, first of all, You've taught the stay in a nice, quiet environment in your living room with no distractions, just you and your dog. That's you are now ready to start proofing. So the first thing you might do is 
just put some noise into the mix. That's adding a distraction. So maybe just stick on YouTube with the sounds of traffic or children playing or dogs or whatever. Keep the volume low and over different sessions, gradually increase that volume until the volume and that distraction is no longer an issue. Then you might want to increase distance and duration to this. How far away can you walk from your dog during the stay? How long can you hold him in the stay? Within reason, obviously. Then you might want to add more. You'll be at home. You might have the noise in there. But now you're going to move a lot more. So instead of just walking away, you might run away. You might dance away. You might be silly. Can your dog stay in that stay while you're doing all of that movement? And then increase again. Can you have the noise, the movement, and other people? Can your dog do a stay while you've got two people walking around the living room and you walk away? Then you've got distractions, you've got distance, and you've got duration all being increased, and you're still in your living room. Can you do the same again and have another dog in the room? Other animals? All of this is proofing and you're still in your living room. Then you might go to other rooms in the house. Maybe your garden if you have one or a quiet park that you can go to and do the same sort of things. Then you might graduate that onto a quiet street and do the same. Into a quiet woodlands area. Maybe a nice area where you might have some distractions such as birds, squirrels, things like that. Can you then do it within that environment? Then you might increase all of those examples with trying it at busier timings. Can you go to a quiet park when it's not so quiet? Can you go to a street when there's more people around? Can you go to the woodlands when you know there might be hikers around? Things like that. All of these things are part of the proofing. And then bring it all the way up to the stage where you can do it basically anywhere, whether that be in proximity to a dog park or in a dog park or on the beach. It's all about building up to being able to do this within any environment, regardless of the distractions. And that is really just using that example to show what we mean by the three Ds. Yeah, to add on to that as well, if your dog is unable to do any of the commands or cues that you have, you can look at one of the three Ds because it's almost certain that it's always one of these trees, one of these three. So if if your dog doesn't do stay, it's it's maybe you're t- telling them to stay from too far away or you're telling them to stay for too long or there's another distraction. So that's why your dog has not is not ready to do a stay with that level of distraction yet. Uh, the only other reason I can think of if your dog fails is, of course, a medical-related uh, issue. That's why we always advise our clients, like, if your dog has, uh, get get your dog a clean bill of health before we start to tackle an issue, whether it's obedience or behavioral. Which leads us nicely into what to avoid when you're proofing. So that that's a really important one that Jay just spoke about there, but there's many, many more. Um But setting your dog up for success is an incredibly paramount one of these, um, which is also similar to flooding. So flooding is effectively when your dog will behave in a subdued manner because they are overstimulated or frightened of an extreme amount of distractions or stimulus. So... We want to avoid that completely when we are doing proofing. So you don't put your dog into a situation which is too much for them, whether that be to ensure they don't get flooded or whether it be just to set them up for success. That is an incredibly important thing to avoid. The next thing would be setting your dogs up for failure, as Fraser mentioned, because a lot of the times you don't, you might not realize it as well, but you are setting your dogs up for failure. I think I made a really short video on this on our blog as well, uh, rewarding the wrong behavior, unknowingly rewarding the wrong behavior because sometimes you pull your dog away. Let's say um, someone's at the door, your dog has not been trained to go to bed, for example, when, when there's a guest at the door. 
But so your dog runs up to the door with you and then you try to pick them up and then move them away. Picking them up is a reward as well because it's physical contact, right? I'm not telling you to start kicking your dog to their bed. Of course not. But you have to start slowly building them up and make sure that they succeed along the way. Because failing too many times, not only do you get too frustrated yourselves, but your dog loses motivation as well because they're not getting rewarded for it. And then they just see it as like, oh, you know what? Maybe I just don't want, I don't want to engage in this session right now. The next one is your dog being overstimulated or stressed before you even start the session. Now, this is one that people are very bad at for ignoring. So they will look at how they feel, but they won't take a look to see how their dog is behaving to see if they're stressed. So, for example, on a positive stress side of things, if you've taken your dog to the beach in the morning and it was really exciting and they played with loads of dogs, trying to do a training session the minute you get home is not likely going to be very successful because their positive stress is going to be high. And the same works for negative stress. If your dog's just been attacked by another dog or the dog's just been spooked by a truck, don't expect them to be able to do a training session straight after that. And even to the stages of not ensuring that or neglecting your dog's physical and mental energy requirements, if you don't ensure that you're meeting these, expecting your dog to be successful in training is quite unreasonable, to be honest. So I know that we've got uh, quite a few videos on meeting your dog's uh, energy requirements and how to do that within our blog and things like that. So if you're thinking about that, go back and have a look at what we're actually talking about in those. The next one would be being inconsistent in your training. So a lot of times, as we said earlier, right? Consistency is key in dog training. Inconsistency always confuses your dog, right? It makes it challenging for them to understand what is expected of them. If, if you're not consistent with your commands or I like to use hand signals as well. The expectation comes across very differently during training sessions. So in different environments, different distractions as well, this will not help your dog at all. You have to be able to develop a very clear understanding of the desired behaviors that you want out of your dog. If you use, if you say stay, and, and this is a really common issue, especially if you have multiple people in the house training one dog, right? If you say stay, but you want, and someone else says stay 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 so it's already very inconsistent in the way that you you communicate with your dog so of course with enough work your dog will realize your dog might realize that oh you know what mom says it this way dad says it's that way but then they're just reading it off your body language rather than trying to understand you so always be very consistent with your training so the next one is patience now patience is something that we all strive to have. We all wish we were more patient. Um, but effectively, when we're talking about it with regards to proofing, it's about not trying to push too hard, not expecting things to happen faster than your dog's own pace. So if your dog isn't getting something, if they're doing something that you might consider wrong, don't blame your dog. Think about the three Ds and try and see what you can do to make it more manageable and set them up for success. If you feel yourself losing patience, try to end on a positive, so make it really easy so that they succeed a good few times and then call it a day. Don't force yourself or your dog through a stressful and frustrating training session, which is also leading you on to overreacting. A lot of people do this. They overreact when their dog gets something which they deem to be wrong. So as I said previously just there, you always want to look at why your dog's not able to do it. Look at the three Ds. How can you make it more manageable for them? But you do not react when your dog gets something wrong because the lack of being rewarded, the, the lack of your attention saying, oh, good, the lack of your attention giving a treat, the lack of that affirmation 
is more than enough to let your dog know that they've done something which wasn't deemed to be the desired action. So you do not want to be scolding your dog. You do not want to be going, oh, God, none of that. Because when you overreact, you're giving your dog stimulus, whether that be negative association or the wrong timing for a positive association. Of course, I also want to add on that doing a lack of reward only comes after you've built a very good bond with your dog. Because you don't want them to... There, there are a lot of shelter dogs out there, right? That that don't get rewarded already. So they, they see that as the norm. But if you build up the bond with your dog, with with true training and, and whatsoever, then not getting the reward, they start to question it. They, they start to go like, oh, you know what? Maybe I just did something wrong, like Brazier said. And that, that's why I'm not getting the reward. Yeah. I mean, all of these things are based on the fact that your dog would be ready to do proofing. Mm-hmm. If you've not got that bond yet, you're not at the stage where you should be doing proofing. Yeah, don't don't attempt all these things yet. Okay, so the the next point that I'm going to talk about is the missed opportunities or or missing opportunities do, while training, right? Of course, to to avoid all this, you have to always stay attentive and be observant during your training sessions. And even though I say training sessions, actually all the time, even if you're walking your dog, you should see that as an opportunity to do some training so that you can capture or reinforce the desired behaviors promptly. You have to always be consistent in your commands, your cues, and your, of course, your positive reinforcement methods to avoid confusion. You have to address all those unwanted behaviors promptly so that you can redirect your dog towards something more desirable. You can also, if your dog is ready, of course, actively seek out and create those opportunities so that your dog knows what is wanted from them so you can ensure that they are well-adjusted and confident. Think about focusing on the right timing as well, of course, to deliver and reinforce your positive reinforcement methods. Of course, if you miss the opportunity, don't see it as the end of the world. Don't give up. You just have to be very confident and calm moving forward. If, if while I was training Blue, because she, she was very dog reactive in the past, she, she sees another dog and then she just bares her teeth and she just lunges and she just tries to pull her way straight towards there. We had to slowly build it up to the point that right now she's more comfortable around them. She, she doesn't react to as many dogs from a distance and things like that. And probably one of the biggest things I've noticed is that when people have done training and even if they've done proofing, they then complain that their dog isn't doing what they want in everyday life. And a lot of that boils down to the fact that you're not using what you have learned in everyday life. So you may have trained your dog to do a stay or a come in training and during proofing. But then when you're out in the park, you might say, come here, Bruno. And obviously that's a completely different set of words. And then you might say, oh, I don't know why they're not listening now. We've done training. We've done proofing. You've got to be consistent in everyday life. Realistically, you've got to understand that training your dog is like training yourself. You will always remember your training, but if you expect to be performing at the same level, you cannot stop training. So that's the sad truth. That is for ourselves. <laughs> so, like, if you're going to the gym, if you do a twelve-week program of an intense body transformation, you've done that twelve weeks. You've got the body you want. If you stop training after that, it's not going to take long until your body goes back to where it was at the beginning. And that is the same for training and proofing. If you don't consistently keep up the work, using opportunities in everyday life to reward your dog for a good reaction towards a passing truck or bus, to reward your dog for being able to do a good sit and stay in the park, making sure that you're setting them up for success in everyday life, making sure you're using what you've learned in everyday life. Because if you don't do that, you're not going to be getting the best 
out of your training or your proofing. So with that, I think we're ready to move on to listener questions, don't you? Yeah, for sure. Okay, so the first okay. question we've got, the first question we've got is from Stephen in Singapore. How long does it take to train and proof a dog? Oh, that's a, that's a good one, Stephen, actually, because that's something that's very commonly asked because a lot of people feel like, oh, you know what, um, obedience classes take 10 sessions and then they're done. But the time frame for seeing progress in proofing your distance duration and distraction training varies on a lot of factors, including your dog's breed, uh, their age, their temperament, any behavioral issues they have, medical issues, and of course, prior training experience that they have. Additionally, consistency and frequency of training sessions play a very significant role. If if you have the time and the commitment to your dog to do it every day, I honestly would say that generally you, you would see progress over a few weeks of consistent training. But of course, please remember that your dog learns at its own pace. So some dogs may grasp the concept very quickly, whilst others might take more time and more repetitions. Uh, Blue picked up agility training within three days, the three sessions that we had it, but Ori is still realizing that the cone is not a reward. <laughs> she still goes up to the cone and then just tries to like push it and then play with it. So patience, consistency, and of course, positive reinforcement are your keys to achieving very long-lasting results. I say long-lasting because you don't want to rush everything within five days and then after that, stop doing it. More importantly, how you manage any setbacks or challenges during proofing is very important. So one, I would uh, assess the situation, identify that whatever you're requesting of your dog, is it too difficult for them at that point of time? And that's why they're not succeeding very well. If it's still too difficult, you have to revisit your basics, right? If you're experiencing too much difficulties, failing too much, it might be helpful to go back to reinforcing some basic commands so that your dog still gets rewarded and you're ensuring that your dog has solid foundation. So you strengthen the basics before you go on to more complex challenges. And breaking down the task at hand, if your dog is still struggling with a specific task, you have to break it down into smaller steps and gradually bring it up to the next level up until you hit your desired level. This allows your dog to experience more success and regain that confidence that they might have lost or build it back up. If all else fails, of course, seek professional help. If you're encountering like a challenge that you feel is too overwhelming for you or you, you've been at it for, for quite a while and you still couldn't get it to be done, Seek help from a professional dog trainer. They can provide you with the guidance and the strategies that you require. Okay, so just to summarize that for Stephen, the length of time it takes to achieve this is based on a few different points. Number one is the level that you want to get to because there's different levels that everybody expects out of their dog. So knowing what you expect your dog to get to is important. Your dog themselves. So genetics, learned behavior, social behavior, all of these things will shape your dog and it will dictate how quickly or how slowly they learn. It's not so much about you can't teach an old dog new tricks. It's more about is your dog a very, very young puppy? Are you trying to teach them things that they're not going to be able to grasp at that point? Or is your dog so old that they're experiencing some health issues due to age and you're expecting them to go quicker based on what you think they should be doing rather than what their actual pace is? Which also brings you on to health. So health is a big factor as well. If you've got a dog that's unwell or a dog that's suffering from arthritis or a dog that's suffering from kidney issues or whatever else, you can't expect them to be doing things as quickly as a dog that's very healthy. You've also got to realize that that discomfort increases stress. So there's already a big distraction added in there before you even start looking at those 3Ds. So there's a lot more to look at than just how long it takes. There's also yourself. 
if you're a quick learner, you'll be able to train your dog quicker. If you're a slower learner, you will take a little bit longer. This is why it's important to understand the next point. Every dog is different and every person is different. So when you're seeking professional help, find a coach, trainer, who is going to be able to do so within your way of learning. Don't just go to a cookie cutting sort of, this is how we do it. Go to somebody that's going to be able to talk to you. And yes, there's loads of great programs which do have a set syllabus and those can work for the majority of people. But some people learn in a slightly different methodology and that's when you need to reach out to somebody that can help you and shape your learning ability to what you're trying to do. And that's what dictates how long it can take. So it can take anywhere between three months to a year, sometimes more, sometimes less, depending on all of those factors. Okay, the next question comes from Chris in Scotland. So the question is, um, they did obedience classes, but proofing was never mentioned. Can you proof training when they are older? Uh, the short answer is yes, of course. Um, there's never an issue with that. But it might just get more difficult because as they go on in life with with you, they encounter the situations whereby it would have been an opportunity to prove the training, but they didn't. So you are unknowingly reinforcing the wrong behavior, the unwanted behavior. Let's say your dog barks when they see another dog or your dog pulls on the leash when they see another dog or runs up to the door, whatever it is. You are allowing that behavior to happen. So therefore, they your dog sees that as the right behavior or the okay behavior in this instance. If you are able to do it earlier, of course, it's it has a lot less issues. So you can start reinforcing all these things. But if you have missed that window of opportunity, that's fine. We can go into things like behavioral shaping and counter conditioning. So obedience classes are there to teach your dog the foundations, right? So their job is to teach your dog, sit down, stay, whatever it is that the obedience classes generally have. So the foundation is built, but it is your job to bring it further to the next step. In obedience classes, they all do they all do really well in a calm environment, in a controlled environment. Some of them even bring it on walks and, and still get your dog to do sit down, stay, or walk on a loose leash, things like that. But when they are brought back home, it's a completely different environment. So effectively, when we're talking about this, yes, you can teach an old dog new tricks, but you've got to remember rehearsal has happened. Their learned behavior has been shaped through what you have previously done, which is kind of what Jay was talking about there. So when you start changing what you reward and what you avoid, that's going to be conflicting to what your dog is used to. So yes, it can sometimes take a bit longer. One of the best ways to do it is actually to bring them back and almost go through the basic obedience stuff again. And then once you've got that to that level again, move on to the proofing then. So you're not restarting from scratch, but you're effectively going back to where you need to be to successfully proof that. I mean, when you're saying that the obedience class never mentioned this, they may not have because not every training school is good, like they're not all equal. But a good training school will do a basic obedience class and then, to be honest, they will try to upsell you to the next class, which will address proofing. So if you stop at level one, you're not going to see level two, three, four, five, six. And that's what happens a lot with these obedience classes. Of course, the same with everything. Sometimes you get good classes, sometimes you don't. Sometimes you get good trainers, sometimes you don't. Not everyone is created equal, unfortunately. And we've got to understand that when we're putting our dogs through training or proofing or any sort of education that we are trying to do. So... I think on that, we're kind of finished for this topic. And I know there was a lot of information there. 
There's also a lot of information that we touched on that we also have in previous episodes and on our blog posts and videos. So please check out the YouTube channel and uh, go through some of these videos that you might find useful. And uh, again, always ask questions. If you guys have any questions, send them in. And when we come over a topic which has got relevance to those questions, we will put them in and we'll address them as best we can. With that said, I hope you guys have enjoyed this episode and please do continue listening and reach out to us. And of course, if you are struggling with your dog and you need help, please feel free to reach out to us and we'll be able to see what you can do or we will refer you to somebody in your area if that is needed as well. So, have a great day and until next time, guys. Thanks for listening. 